You could really say the central theme of the letter is God's grace to the Ephesians. Very quickly, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see that God chose us before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians, we see in chapter 1 as well, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. These truths were difficult for some to hear and still are. However, these truths should bring us all to humbly fall on our knees. Chapter 1, 13 and 14, we see believers are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 of Ephesians, we see we were dead in our sins. We were spiritually dead. Not mostly dead, but all dead. Then it says, but God, don't you just love the but God verses in the Bible? Amen. Being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive with Christ. Wow. Chapter 3, we get to chapter 3, verse 6, we see Paul reveals the mystery of the gospel, which is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promises of God. Incredible and difficult for some Jewish believers to accept. Skipping ahead to chapter 6, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains. The use of the word ambassador, there is a key term. An ambassador is sent by the leader of a foreign country, of a country to represent them in a foreign land. So clearly, he sees himself as a liaison sent from God to present the gospel to the Gentiles. Realizing the fact that suffering and persecution were part of it. Paul tells of so many amazing truths pointing to the grace and mercy of God prior to him praying for spiritual strength for the Ephesian believers. In Ephesians three fourteen through 21, Paul prays for the believers there that they would be strengthened in faith. Today I would like to point out four elements of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. The believers there, those who have trusted Christ for salvation, who are not relying on their own righteousness, but Christ. Number one, Paul's attitude in his prayer. Number two, Paul recognizing God's sovereignty in prayer. Three, the desire of Paul's prayer. And four, the result of Paul's prayer. The first element is Paul's attitude in prayer. Following are two aspects of Paul's attitude in prayer. The first aspect regarding his attitude is that he approaches prayer with boldness and confidence. I'd actually like to jump back just a hair to Ephesians 3.12 where Paul says, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith. Paul comes with boldness and confidence on their behalf. Why does he have boldness to approach God in prayer? Well, let me tell you, in Ephesians, or rather, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4.15, it tells us that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, with our weaknesses, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Because of this, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. As children of God, Christ is our older brother. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that he is not ashamed to call those he sanctifies brothers. 
A term we might use here is that he is our kinsman redeemer. In the Old Testament, a kinsman redeemer was a close relative who redeemed or saved someone that was in trouble or need. He loves and cares for us. And he tells us over and over to not be afraid. Because of this, we can certainly approach him with boldness and confidence as well. What does it mean that he sympathizes with us? As it says in Hebrews, though he himself was perfect, he has experienced the same needs and temptations as us and understands our frailties. We are in an eternal relationship with him that cannot be undone, that cannot be thwarted by the craftiness of the devil. And in addition to that, Christ represents us before the Father and intercedes for us always. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. With Christ himself interceding for us at this very moment. At this very moment. Think about that. He's interceding for us at this very moment. Certainly we can also, like Paul, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Christ pleads on our behalf. He advocates for us with the Father. Have you ever been in serious need somehow and someone stepped in and advocated for you? when you thought perhaps all was lost. Imagine, this is kind of simplistic analogy, but imagine you were on death row and someone came forward and advocated for you, but not only that, they also took your place. And you were released. How would you feel? Now magnify that by an infinite order of magnitude, and that is how Christ is advocating for us. How should we feel? We should be humbled joy-filled as well as bold and confident that we could approach him with anything in our lives. Christ not only intercedes for us, he also literally showed us how to pray to the Father. He not only gives us the boldness and confidence to approach the Father, he also shows us how to approach the Father. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, holy be your name. That the very name of God would be holy, set apart. Interestingly, nowhere in the Old Testament do we find anyone referring to God as Father. You realize that? Nowhere in the Old Testament. The first Jew we see referring to God as Father is, in the New Testament, you guessed it, it's where Jesus calls God Father. Jesus is the first Jew to call God Father. This is one reason why he was persecuted, that he would dare refer to God as his Father. When we pray, I would guess that a large majority of us would begin our prayer by referring to God as Father. Let us not... Take that honor and privilege casually. All this to say, Christ is our Redeemer, our Interceder, and our older brother. 
Paul knew this as he approached the Father in confidence and boldness on behalf of the Ephesians. The second aspect of Paul's attitude in prayer is that he approaches prayer with love for the Ephesians and reverence for God. Verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees. For what reason does he pray for them? Well, looking back at 13 again, it's so that they do not lose heart over what he is suffering. What is he suffering? Well, throughout the New Testament, we see that Paul suffered much loss and pain and was willing to do so for the sake of the gospel. Keep in mind, he was writing this letter from prison under house arrest in Rome. I believe that Paul knew that his suffering for the gospel was used by God to keep him close to himself. I would certainly not wish suffering on anyone, but I'm sure you may have experienced that there can be a certain sweetness and closeness, a certain sweetness and closeness to Christ as we suffer. In general, for the gospel, for health reasons, or whatever the cause, suffering can turn our eyes from temporal, earthly matters to our Savior and that which is eternal. What are you suffering from today? Turn your eyes to Christ and know that he understands. And though you may be weak, he will use these times to draw you close. Several years ago, I had colon cancer. And I will never forget how he used his word to draw me close during that time. I don't want that trial back. But I did love the closeness and dependence that he brings during trials and suffering. At times like those, the things of God become incredibly real and practical in our lives. Though he suffered much, Paul points out in verse 13 that his suffering was for their glory. By carrying the gospel message to them, he suffered on their behalf which was ultimately for their good. As mentioned earlier, by calling himself an ambassador in chains, we get the sense that he knew full well that suffering was to be part of his mission of delivering the gospel to a foreign people. It had been five years since he visited his friends in Ephesus. We can see here that they love Paul and are deeply invested in his life and ministry by their great concern for his suffering. Paul here is praying for their spiritual strength. He comes to the Father in prayer for them to not lose heart, to not be discouraged. Imagine that. He's the one that's suffering in prison and he's asking God to keep them from being discouraged. Incredible. Again, in verse 14, Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees. As he comes to the Father in prayer, He comes in reverence as he bows his knees. We understand that he is interceding on behalf of the Ephesians, but why does he bow his knees when Jews would normally stand to pray? Bowing his knees shows an attitude of humility and sincerity. James 5.16 tells us in one translation that the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The term fervent here can also include the idea of being 
wholehearted and earnest. Be mindful that Paul, along with all true believers, are only truly righteous because of Christ and that his righteousness is given to us as a gift that we do not deserve and cannot earn. This shows Paul's attitude toward the Father that God is magnificently holy and he himself is not. And we are not. He also bows his knees because of the awesomeness of God as recounted in the opening chapters of this book. Where does bowing the knee come from? Well, it shows deference to someone greater than ourselves. In doing this, we are placing ourselves in a humble and genuinely vulnerable position before someone greater than ourselves. This is a heartfelt and intense prayer by Paul. We can sense that he has a genuine love for the Ephesian believers and an acknowledgement of the holiness of God. As I think about my own prayer life, often my own prayers are not as humble and genuine as they should be. If we're all honest, I think many of us feel the same way. But by God's grace, but by God's grace, he does give us times in our lives to look back upon and recall how he has answered prayer in our lives. Those times are like stakes in the ground, if you will, of our spiritual lives. You know, it's always good to recall God's mercies in our lives. It's always good to take time and think back about how God has been faithful to us, especially when we're going through a trial, that we don't lose heart, that we think God is faithful. He was faithful in the past. He's faithful in the present. He'll be faithful in the future. Think of a time you humbly and genuinely bowed your knee before God. Of course, we don't have to physically bow our knee to have a, a true prayer. I mean, it's the attitude of bowing that's the real key. But think of a time you had that <clears throat> attitude. I can think, for me, a stake in the ground I'll never forget was in my life that I can remember like yesterday, like yesterday, after was after my senior year in college, after a very serious illness, I was in the, oh, intensive care like 68 days. That's a whole other story. It's part of my testimony. Uh, had no idea what to do with my life. I was at home living with my parents for a year, trying to recuperate from this illness. I didn't know what to do, what to do with my life. Everything was derailed. And I can specifically remember bowing beside my bed in tears crying out I said God I don't even know which way to go I don't even know where to start two weeks later God answered that prayer I got a position at a local hospital through connection with my pastor at my church and stayed with that company for 30 years praise God Praise God. I desire more times like that in my life, don't you? I wish I had more stories like that. I desire more time like that in my life. Paul is coming and bowing before the Lord in a humble and genuine fashion to advocate for the Ephesians. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, For whom every family in in heaven 
and on earth is named. Paul is clear that God named every family, including Jews and Gentiles. Here we see that he may be alluding to the mystery of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles are all included in the body. The way of salvation is open to all of mankind, from every ethnicity and every walk of life. Right before he, that he mentions every family in heaven, Jewish intertestamental literature refers to families of angels. Paul may be indicating here that God named the angels as well as mankind. This shows Paul's reverence for the Father in that biblically, the namer is above those that are named. In Psalm 147, verse 4, it says, He determines the number of stars. He gives them, he gives to all of them their names. God gave Adam dominion over the animals and he told him to name them. Again, the namer is greater than the named. God named us. Again, Paul shows great honor and reverence for the Lord when he points out that God named every family in heaven and on earth. All of this shows the reverence and awe that Paul has for God. So in the first element, Paul's attitude in prayer, we can see that he comes to the Father with boldness, confidence, and reverence. In the second element of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, we see that he recognizes God's sovereignty in prayer. Verse 16, Paul makes it clear that God is able. God is able. That according to the riches, according to his riches in glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There's a lot in that statement. First, what is the magnitude of God's riches and glory? Infinite. Paul knows that God's abilities and riches are limitless. This is the power that God has to strengthen them. And he does this through the work of the Spirit in their inner being, or you might say inner man. What does this mean? As believers, the Ephesians, like believers today, have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. He is the power source in our daily lives. In the New Testament, in the books written by John, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, in Greek, which means advocate. He is someone that comes alongside us to help us. Para means to come alongside, like a parachurch organization or a paratrooper that comes alongside to help. One commentator said that in, in antiquity, families would hire a lawyer on retainer in case they needed help. These lawyers were also known as paracletes as they would come alongside to help those with legal issues. The Holy Spirit is our helper and advocate and works in us to strengthen us and conform us to the image of Christ. Although the three members of the Godhead are equally God, they do have general roles that they fulfill. The Father is the Creator, the Son is the Redeemer, and the Spirit is the Advocate comforter, and also the applier. He applies the word of God in our lives. 
and works in our inner being to change us and make us more like Christ. He is the power source. Pointing out the Spirit's work with the inner man is very pointed language on his work in their lives. Much of Ephesians addresses the corporate body, the church, but we see here that Paul addresses the Spirit's work in individuals, in our inner man. God is sovereignly at work, not only corporately, but also individually. When we came to Christ in faith, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we receive the Spirit in our lives as our counselor and comforter. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers at the moment of conversion, at which time he is at work on our inner man. There are those that would have us believe that this is not so, and there is a, that there is a separate filling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but Romans 8, 9 is clear where Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone that does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Amen. It is a Spirit that strengthens us with power. This is the boldness and confidence that we talked about earlier. Proverbs 28.1 tells us, The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We do not worry because God is our sovereign. The wicked flee because they do not know God, nor do they have confidence in him. Our strength comes from the Lord through his spirit, keeping in mind that we are only righteous because of Christ, because it is his righteousness that covers us, that is imputed to us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.14 that the Spirit is the guarantee or down payment of our inheritance, eternal life with God. If you've ever bought or sold a house, you definitely know what a down payment is, right? Is it important? Yeah, absolutely it is. It's a promise. It is a promise. If the promise is not kept, the money is forfeited. God would never have to forfeit his down payment. Never. So in the first element, Paul's attitude in prayer, we can see that he comes to the Father with boldness, confidence, and reverence. In the second element, Paul recognizes God's sovereignty in prayer. In the third element, we see Paul's desire for them in his prayer. Verse 16, Paul points out that God is able to strengthen them, but... His desire is not that they would be strengthened in what they can do or what they can know, but in their love for God and each other. Their love for God and each other. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Being rooted and grounded in love. Is this deep abiding relationship with Christ in our lives that grounds and roots us in love. Paul asks that Christ would dwell in their hearts, to dwell, to reside, to live as a permanent resident in their hearts. The imagery Paul uses of being grounded and rooted is very instructive. 
For instance, thinking of a tree's roots, love must undergird everything in our lives. The biggest tree in the world, the giant sequoia known as General Sherman. I don't know if anyone in our congregation has been there, but it's located in the Sequoia National Park in California. Some of you probably have seen this General Sherman. It is 52,500 cubic feet of tree. Now, I don't know how many cubic feet are in the sanctuary here. Harvey probably has that on the tip of his tongue, but I don't. Uh, But it's a lot. It is a lot. It is held upright because it is properly rooted and grounded. Properly rooted and grounded. In the same way that the root system of the General Sherman is of extreme importance for one another, so is our love for God and each other. As a matter of fact, these are the two most important commandments according to Jesus. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40 tells us, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That said, it is this rootedness and love that helps us to comprehend the love of Christ. Which in verse 18, Paul prays for them that they would have the strength to know the width, depth, length, and height of Christ's love. While the hope and prayer of Paul is that these believers would be able to comprehend the love of Christ, yet it is as impossible to fully understand as it is infinite. One commentator said, this spatial language harkens back to the temple image in verse 221, which points to the fact that Jew and Gentile alike are now part of a corporate dwelling place for God. They are all included in the love of God. We are now one in Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel that Paul talks about, that salvation is open to Jews and Gentiles alike. His prayer is that we would all know the dimensions of Christ's love, to know it in its fullness, to know its magnitude at least as much as humanly possible. Paul uses similar language in Romans 8:38 and 39 to convey this overwhelming magnitude of Christ's love, where it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In verse 19, Paul then goes on to say, to know the love of Christ that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. He adds, that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Human beings can never contain all of God. Yet Paul's prayer is that they would be filled with the totality of who God is that they would lack nothing of God. His spirit, his love, his peace, his comfort, and on and on. 
The Greek word for fullness here is pleroma. Sproul explains pleroma as meaning not just full, but overflowing, unable to contain any more at all. Borrowing an illustration from Sproul, it's a, a glass of tap water. The tap is turned on, not just filled to the top, but overflowing, running down the sides, filling to almost being ready to burst. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would know the infinite dimensions of Christ's love to such a degree that they would be pleromid, if you will, to all the fullness of God. So in the first element, Paul's attitude in prayer, we see that he comes to the Father with boldness, confidence, and reverence. In the second element, Paul recognizes God's sovereignty in prayer. In the third element, we see Paul's desire for the Ephesians in prayer. In the fourth and final element, we see the result of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. In verses 20 and 21, Paul closes with a doxology, which is essentially an expression of praise to God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The first half of the letter climaxes with this doxology, magnifying God and all that he is and is capable of doing. Paul emphasizes again God's sovereignty in stating that God is able to do not just abundantly, but exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. God can do more than we can even think He can solve our biggest problems. And it's always in the context of what is for his glory and our good. That reality should humble us and cause us to fall on our faces in gratitude. He doesn't always do what we think he should do, but he always does what is best. Sometimes that's hard but it's still best. Remember his glory and our good. When we go through difficult times, we and myself need to train ourselves to look for what he is doing that brings him glory and trust that it is always for our ultimate good. According to the power that is at work in us, the overwhelming power of God at work in us through his spirit to bring about his perfect plan in our lives and bring reconciliation of humans to himself. In closing, we can be assured that God has already solved our biggest problem and the biggest problem that the Ephesian believers had by sending his son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, to be the sacrificial atonement for our sin. For this we praise his holy name. Let me ask, what do these elements look like in your life, in my life? 
Do they bring us to the same doxology or praise of God? If not, we need to revisit these in our lives. Are our prayers bold, confident, and reverent? If not, maybe we need to spend more time with our Savior, better understanding how awesome He really is. Do our prayers recognize and celebrate God's ability? If not, maybe we need to spend more time in Scripture to better grasp the sovereignty of God. Do our prayers reflect God's desire for us and others, which is to strengthen us spiritually? If not, maybe we need to gain a better understanding of God's desire for us to grow in conformity with Christ. As we have a proper grasp of the first three elements, the result of our prayer will be praise to God. For some fresh insight, pick a person or an issue in your life. How would you relate these prayer elements to that person or issue? If you'd like to talk further about these elements in our prayer life or about your relationship with Christ as your kinsman redeemer, the elders will be available in the foyer after the service. Pray with me. Father God, we do thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy, and grace. We thank you for how awesome you are. We thank you for making a way for us to spend eternity with you through your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you care for us. You care for everything we go through, that your Son relates to us and sympathizes with us. We praise you for that. We thank you that you know when we are suffering, when we are in pain, and that you care for us and that you sent your comforter to us to bring encouragement, guidance, direction, comfort, and, yes, conviction as we need it. Thank you for the great things you have done. And thank you for these words in this book that are so helpful for us. Help us, Lord, now to apply the elements of this prayer to our own lives, that you would be glorified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As Terry was rehearsing all the elements of Christ as our older brother, our redeemer, the one who gives us access to the Father, couldn't help but anticipate what we will enjoy in the Lord's table. Every month we come around the Lord's table to remind ourselves who we are individually in our redemption in Christ, corporately as the body of Christ together. And so we're going to enjoy that together this morning, the Lord's table. If you're a member of our church, uh, you're welcome to participate because that's a sign that you, you have turned from your sin, you've openly professed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been baptized. If you're a member of another local church that preaches the gospel 
and you have openly professed your faith in Christ,